We are currently preaching expositionally through the book of 1 John. That's what we do here. We uh, usually preach verse by verse through a book. And so we are currently in the book of 1 John. I invite you to turn with me to chapter 3 of 1 John. 1 John is in the back of your Bible, close to the book of Revelation. Today we will be looking at uh, verses 4 through 10 of chapter 3. The title of the sermon this morning is called The Children of God and Sin. Our key words for you children are sin, righteousness, and practice. If you keep notes. We live in a day where truth is relative. What I mean by this is there is there are no absolutes. There are no no certainties about anything. Even in the realm of religion, there are no certainties. As Christians, we believe and affirm that Jesus is the only unique Son of God. He came to earth, took on human flesh in order to live the life that was required of us and to die the death that we deserve. We We believe all those who place their faith in His finished work alone are saved and guaranteed an eternal existence in heaven with God. These are the things that we as Christians believe, and we believe many more, but these are the fundamentals that we believe. There are also those who would, that, who would not necessarily disagree with anything that I just said, but would add that they also think that there are other sons of God's. There are other ways to heaven. Or that we, there, we must in some way earn our way to heaven. Many of these people will claim to be Christians, but they cannot emphatically say that Jesus is the only way. In other words, they believe we must be open to many other possibilities. This is the day that we all live in, but this is nothing new. It has always been this way, and it was this way in the day of John the Apostle. So to separate truth from error is one of the goals that John is seeking to accomplish in his letter that we are looking at right now. That is why it is frequently the case that the letter's affirmations and teachings are accompanied by strong repudiations and denials. A good example of this will be found in in verse 5 of the first chapter of 1 John where after having stated that God is light, John immediately adds, and in Him is no darkness at all. He goes on to say that those who know God must walk in the light, but he first denies that a person can know God and still walk in darkness. He denies that sin in a particular individual can be eradicated, and he also denies that it is possible for a person to never have, been, never have sinned all this together in the same section. And so this, what he is doing here, what this technique is called is the technique of contrast. In other words, you attempt to prove something by first saying what it is not. As has been stated before, John is giving us in in this book three tests by which God, by which a child of God can know that he really is a child of God. And we have already seen all three of these up to this point. We looked at the moral test or the test of righteousness or obedience in chapter 2, verse 3 through 6. 
We've looked at the social test or the test of loving your brothers in chapter 2, verses 7 through 11. And we've looked at the doctrinal test. In other words, what do you believe? What is truth in chapter 2, verses 18 through 27? And now John is going to revisit all of those three of them again. But this time he's going to use the art of contrast, comparing and contrast, to make sure his readers are perfectly clear on what it means to be a child of God. Here in this section that we're going to be looking at today, we're going to be revisiting or relooking at uh, the moral test. And so I want to go back and read the first mention of how when John is talking about the test of obedience as a mark of a true child of God, if you just want to look back in chapter 2, verses 3 through 6, he says, And by this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, in him truly the love of God is perfected. By this we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. And so this is the first test of the moral test, or what we're calling the test to determine, is the pattern of my life a pattern of life of obedience to Christ? Or am I, like John is saying, a liar? And so going through uh, chapter 3, verses 4 through 10, we're going to revisit that concept again today. And so I want to read through that text, and then I will show my outline after I get through reading. I'm going to back up and begin reading in verse 28 of chapter 2 and then read through uh, verse 10. And now, little children, abide in him, so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God. And so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Beloved, we are God's children And what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. You know that he appeared to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. For the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him. And he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. And so we see in this section here some very pointed statements being made by the apostle here. And so we're going to dive into that today. Um, it's really chapter, or verse 4 through 10 is really two sections in one that we're going to be looking at. They're kind of parallel. That's, that's something that we've already uh, shown before, that John is, uh, uses the technique quite often of parallel and go, 
uh, going into a subject and leaving it and coming back to it again later to further elaborate his point. And so he's doing this again. Uh, that is kind of broken up between verses 4 through 7. We see uh, a theme that John is building. And then verses 8 through 10 is kind of parallel to the, to the first three verses that he's talking about. So the way that I'm going to look at this this morning is we're going to look at these two side by side, these two sections. And so the four headings that I'm going to be looking at, the four points that we're going to be looking at is first, uh, John is talking about sin and its origins, and that is covered in verse 4 and verse 8a. The second thing we'll be looking at is that the work of Christ in destroying sin and the works of the devil in verses 5 and 8b. Then we will look at sin in the Christian life in verse 6 and 9. And then finally, we will look at an appeal for righteousness or right thinking in verses 7 through 10. And so that will be the outline that I will be following this morning. The first thing, the nature of sin and its origins, verses 4 and 8a. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. Here again, we've, this is a familiar term. This is the Greek term hamartia, which we all know uh, have said several times is an archery term. It means to actually miss the mark. The mark is uh, the law of God, and so we've missed that mark. Uh, but, but one thing he says here, this is really one of the best uh, definitions of sin in the whole Bible, where John is saying here, uh, whoever practices of sin also practices lawlessness. In our children's catechism that we, that we use here, Question 23 asks, what is sin? The answer, sin is any transgression of the law of God. Question 24, what is meant by transgression? Answer, doing what God forbids. It's that very simple. So what John is getting to is that this is not so much a transgression of a particular law or commandments as it is really an attitude of revolt or rebellion against God's supreme authority and the authority of his words. That's the heinousness of sin, the nature of sin that John is trying to paint for us here. It's not that we're just breaking a set of rules here. We are actually in full revolt against our Heavenly Father. And James very pointedly says in James chapter 2, verses 10 through 11, For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become accountable for all of it. For he who said, Do not commit adultery, also said, Do not murder. If you do not commit adultery but do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. And so in our day, I mean, we have a lot of laws that we follow in America. And we, we keep, for the most part, I think we keep them. But, I mean, we do break some of them. We break the speed limit. We litter. We do this or that, some minor things. And so in our mind, we don't think we're lawbreakers. We're, 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 not, we're not doing the heinous things. I haven't robbed a bank. I haven't killed anybody or kidnapped anybody. But in the spiritual realm... Sin is heinous, it is lawlessness, because the point of what James is through, the reason that you are, if you just fail in one point, the reason that you are guilty of the whole thing is because of what he says in verse 11. For he who said, that's the, that is the weight behind the law, the he, God himself. The law is not just an arbitrary commandment that God has set up and said, okay, I want you to keep these at the best of your ability. No, the law represents who God is, His character, His holiness. That is what is wrapped up in the law of God. And so when we fail in one point, it's not that we have, 
okay, if I fail in one and I do 99 on, on the grand scale of things, I'm doing pretty good. No, the one that I failed in was a complete rebellion against the he who said, this is a transgression of my law. This is a violation of who I am. And so that is the heinousness of what sin is. That is what John is trying to say here. It's not just that we're breaking commandments. We are actually transgressors. We are lawless people when we sin. The world has its own definition of sin. With some people, sins are the more heinous acts like murder, adultery, or child molestation. Others, sin is some naughty deed usually related to sex, which usually arouses a chuckle or a laughter when we think about it. Still others try to explain sin in terms of a mistake that really any human being is able to make and often makes. But for the most part, the world doesn't view sin as anything serious, much less as lawlessness. That is not the way our world sees it. And so this is why the Christian cannot and must not stand in agreement with the world because sin at its very heart, at the nature, at its root, is lawlessness. It is lawlessness against the God who gave us the law. It is not just making mistakes or breaking a few rules that God has set up. At the heart of sin is rebellion against our Creator. To illustrate this, we all know that uh, when, we're, when we're raising our children and, and they, they fail to do something that we ask them to do, well, that's bad and we usually punish that. But whenever a child, whenever you tell your child to do something, they defiantly stand in front of you and say, no, that is a whole new level, isn't it? That's a whole new level of disobedience that will usually necessitate a whole new level of punishment, right? Because the very nature, that, the very uh, driving force behind that was, I will not be held accountable by you. And so that is the very nature of what John is trying to point here, of what sin it is, really lawlessness. It's a lack of law. It's a lack of of understanding of that the law represents who God is. And when we break that law, we rebel against Him as our Father and our Creator. Next, John tells us in verse 8a um, that whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. This is the origin of sin. This is where sin started. The key to understanding John's meaning lies in the last phrase, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. This points us back to the original fall of Satan himself. You see, God created Satan and all his angels as good. We know that because at the end of the creation, God looked out and said, everything is good, very good. And so, But Satan sinned against God and led a rebellion of other angels who became demons. Most scholars believe that in Isaiah chapter 14, verses 12 through 14, which on one level describes a taunt against the king of Babylon, is also a description of Satan's fall. Listen and follow along. Isaiah chapter 14, verses 12 through 14. How you are fallen from heaven, O day star, son of dawn. How you are cut down to the ground, you who laid the nations low. You said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven. Above the stars of God, I will set my throne on high. I will sit on the mount of assembly in the far reaches of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. 
See, notice that five times the, the, the writer Isaiah is telling us that the devil said, I will, in opposition to God. He was not content with where God had created him. He wanted his own way. He wanted to do things his own way. And so as we saw in verse 4, which is parallel to this verse in 8, the essence of sin is rebellion against God. The sinner says, I will want my way. I will not submit to the Most High God. And so this is where sin began. Now we know original sin, the doctrine of original sin says that the reason that we have a sinful nature is because of our parents, Adam and Eve, who sinned and fell in the garden. And that that thrust all of their progeny, all of us, into a natural state of rebellion against God. We're born with that nature. But sin itself entered the created order with Satan himself when he rebelled against God and led, led several angel, or many angels with him. And so that is where uh, sin began because the devil, and, and this is talking about the nature of sin itself because the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The very character of Satan himself is a character of lawlessness. He has been at war with God since his fall. And so the, uh, the nature of sin is that it is lawlessness, and we know that it got its beginning from Satan himself. And we'll come back and talk about Satan some more in a few minutes. Next, we want to look at our second point, the work of Christ as it pertains to sin and the devil. Verse 5, you know that he appeared to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. This is Christ's opposition to sin itself. John says, you know that Christ came to, t- to take away sins. This is basic knowledge to us as Christians. This is the basic understanding of the gospel. He is alluding to the earthly ministry of Jesus, and he reminds his readers that they are fully acquainted with the essence of the gospel, that Christ takes away our sins. These were the words of John the Baptist when he seen Christ coming before his baptism. He said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The Old Testament prophets foretold that the Messiah would come and to remove the sins of his people. In Isaiah 53, that entire chapter is a beautiful messianic prophecy of the Messiah and what all he would do. But verse 6, he says, All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned each every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Note that John says he came to take away sins, plural. Christ came to, to take away all of the sins of his people, past, present, and future. And how does he do that? Because he says, in him there is no sin. John writes this phrase in the present tense to indicate that Christ always has been, is, and will be, without sin. When Jesus was hanging on the cross and he had endured those hours of of pain and agony and, and, and having his father turn his back on him in a darkness and all that was going on in that great exchange that, it, that is called on the cross whenever our sin was being placed on Christ himself and then, and then our, his righteousness is being credited back to us, Jesus says, when Jesus had received the sour wine, he says, it is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his gave up the spirit, his spirit. What did he mean? It is finished. The sin debts of all of his people were paid in full. And it was completed. The transaction was complete. The exchange was done. It is finished. Those were triumphant words. 
In that same chapter of Isaiah 53, again in verse 11, it says that out of the anguish of his soul, speaking about Jesus, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the, shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. And so the key thing is there, out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. Christ was not a failure on the cross. Everyone that he died for on the cross will be in eternity with him in heaven forever. There is no possibility that that can ever change. And so Christ can look on, on the anguish of his soul and all that he went through on the cross and say, after he said it is finished, but he can look and see and he can be satisfied that there is not a single one that his father gave him that he will lose. He paid their sin debt in full. In 1 John 2, 2, a verse that we covered many, a few weeks ago, He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but for the whole world. And so we know that the work of Christ, He came to take away sins, and in Him there is no sin. This is the power of what it means, or, or the meaning of what it means whenever we as Christians, once God, the Holy Spirit, saves us, He places us in the body of Christ. I spoke about this last week as we were baptizing Cameron. And we say that baptism is a, is a visible a picture of a, of a spiritual reality that's already taken place. When Cameron is, was sitting there about to be baptized, he was there representing his, his, his unredeemed self. And then as we baptize him into the water, he is going into the grave. But then when he comes out of the grave, he comes out of the water. And why is it different? Because when he goes into the grave, he goes into the grave with Christ. And he's placed in Christ's body. And so everything that happened to Christ by going into the grave and coming out triumphant, we are a part of that because we are in his body. We are a part of him. And so whenever Christ comes to take away sins and in him there is no sin, then that means that we are a part of that. And we will explore in a minute more about what it means about our particular sins. But, but, as, but as God the Father looks at us, what does he see? Does he see you and me as sinners or does he see Christ, his son's righteousness that covers us? I think it's the latter. He sees the perfect righteous. That is that white robe that, this, that the scriptures talk about that covers us. That, that, that sinless, pure robe of Christ and his righteousness that covers us. So Christ came to take away sins. Christ also came to defeat the devil. The reason the Son of God, verse 8b, appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. Destroy here means to render inoperative or powerless. Christ came to break the controlling power of the devil, who has been and still is in the business of sinning, killing, destroying, and inciting men to rebel against God. After the fall, we see the great promise of God that we consider to be the initial proclamation of the gospel in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, when God is pronouncing his curses on, after he had pronounced his curse on, on Adam and Eve, he pronounces the curse on Satan himself. And he says, I will put enmity between you, Satan, and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He, Christ, shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. This is really the summation of the rest of the Bible, is it not? The great battle between God and Satan. It's not a battle of equals, but nonetheless, it is a war that ensues from the day that, 
that, that, that humanity falls, we see this great war between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of, of Satan. And so we see that, uh, that verse there as is, is really setting the stage for the rest of the narrative that will come, which means the rest of the Bible. We see this struggle between uh, the, the kingdom of God and the kingdom of, of darkness. And then the ultimate, the, the victory comes at the cross. That is where the point where it says that he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. That is when Satan received his ultimate defeat was at the cross. And now he's nothing more than a guerrilla warfare. He's, he's, he's in the hills and he comes in and does, does sneak attacks on us or on, on the children of God, but he has no power over us anymore. We are no longer a part of his kingdom. We have been taken out of the kingdom of darkness and placed in the kingdom of light. Because Why? Because we're great? Because we're powerful? No, because of our brother, Christ, who we are a part of, because he came to destroy the devil, and he did. On the cross. Hebrews chapter 2 verses 14 through 15. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things. Speaking about Christ. That through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death. That is the devil. And deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. That's a commentary on our lives before we came to know Christ. We were in bondage. We were in bondage to sin and Satan. And we were in fear of death. How many of you can remember before you knew Christ that there was always that uncertainty of death? The sting was there. You were fearful of it. But now, that fear has been completely destroyed because Christ Himself has destroyed death. He destroyed Satan on the cross, and with him he destroyed death. It no longer has that sting. Oh, death, where is your victory? Where is your sting? It is no longer there. It's been removed by the work of Christ on the cross. A third point I want to look at, verses 6 through 9, 6 and 9 rather, sin and the Christian life. Verse 6, no one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has seen him or known him. Now, no doubt this is a troubling verse for us. There has been much confusion over the ages about what this actually means. I'm sure all of us will admit that when we first read this passage, whether it was many years ago or just recently, that our reaction was really concern and confusion. You were probably thinking you were doing okay before this. You had professed faith in Christ. You'd been baptized, began faithfully attending church, serving, praying, doing the things a child of good should, a child of God should do. And you began reading your Bible. And like, if it was like me when I first got saved, I wanted, I started in Genesis, and I wanted to go all the way through the Bible. And I got bogged down in Leviticus. <laughs> I said, okay, maybe it's a better idea to not try to read through the Old Testament first. Let's start in the New Testament. I started in Matthew, and I just started reading sequentially all the way through. I'm, get, I'm doing good, and I'm getting all the way through these books, these great books, these rich books that talks about the life of Christ 
and everything that he does. And then I get into the book of Acts and see the works of the apostles, how the church was born, and it's exciting, it's juicy. You get into the epistles of Paul and Romans, man, you can't get no better than Romans. And you're learning all these great doctrinal truths and you're growing and you're, you're going through Ephesians and Galatians. Then you get into Hebrews and you're just, you're just licking up what it's talking about, the, the beauty of Christ and, and how Christ is greater than everything, angels and everything. But then you get to this book of 1 John and he says, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read it in the version that I first read it in, in the New King James. He says, whoever abides in him does not sin. Whoever sees him, whoever sins has neither seen him or known him. I'm like, what? <laughs> what in the world? All of my excitement and all of the joy and all of the, the, the things that God is doing immediately drains out of me. And I'm like, oh my gosh, I'm not a Christian. Because he says, whoever abides in him, because I've already read about what it means to abide in him. That means that you're saved. You're in Christ. He does not sin. And I'm like, well, that doesn't sound like me. I sin every day. Whoever sins has neither seen him nor known him. I'm like, oh my gosh. All this time I thought I was in good standing with God, and maybe I'm not because I'm, my, my life is characterized by sin every day. Oh, there's, there's, there's growth. I can see a change. Things are different now. But nonetheless, I still have this sin that I'm dealing with. And so is John really saying that Christians do not commit acts of sin? Well... We've already read in chapter 1, verses 8 through 10, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. Now I'm really confused. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. Okay, I'm not saying I don't have any sin. I have a lot of sin. Amen? Not just about me, about you too. <laughs> Amen? We all have a lot of sin. We deal with sin every day. So I'm okay with, I'm tracking with John here. I'm not deceived. I know I have sin. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. Okay, I'm tracking with that. I'm confessing. I, I hate my sin. Every day I'm coming to God and I'm confessing and repenting of my sin. It says he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins. Okay. It sounds like a good transaction going on. God is ultimately forgiving me, but every day I need to go back and confess my sins and repent and make that a pattern of my life. I'm tracking with that. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar. I'm not saying that. I'm, I, I've been a sinner since, since as long as I've known I've been alive. And so I'm not saying I have never sinned. We have not sinned. I'm not saying that. So, but then still, how do I, how do I put that together with what John is saying? Whoever abides in him does not sin. How do I do that? What's going on here? Well, we must remember that it was the original writings that were inspired. What I mean by that, that means that we must go back to the Greek. We have very reliable translations today, I believe. But there are some places where, and I think this is a very good instance, where we must go back to the Greek. And we, we need to get into that habit every, everywhere we go in the Scriptures. But in the New Testament, we must go back to the Greek and see what it is that the, what John was actually saying when he wrote it originally. That is what was inspired. In verses 6 and verses 9, all of the references that are concerning sin are in the present tense. 
which simply means continuous or repeated action. It means that you do something and you do it and you do it and you do it and you keep doing it over and over and over again. Thus, it cannot be referring to a single instance of sin or else he would have used what is called the aorist tense. That's another uh, type of tense of Greek verbs. And what that simply means is that undefined action as opposed to continuous action. Okay? An aorist verb would be describing a single instance of, an, of, of occurrence, whereas the perfect or the present tense means on and on, over and over and over and over. It's talking about a pattern of life. Okay? You, get, you following with me? Uh, a good uh, example of an, an aorist tense as, as it pertains to sin is in chapter 2, verse 1 of 1 John. He says, My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. The word sin there is in the aorist tense, which means he's talking about a single instance of sin. He's not saying that, my little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not have a pattern of sin. He's saying because that's impossible, right? We can't get to a place to where we're sinless. And that's not what John was writing for. He was writing so that we can win those individual wars with individual sins every day. And so that's what the, the point of verse, uh, chapter 2, verse 1 is that, I am writing these things so that you may not individually commit acts of sin. Commit individual acts of sin. That's the reason I'm writing this to you. But over here in chapter 3, it's the different. It's not individual acts of sin he's talking about. It's talking about a way of life. And so I like the English Standard Version rendering here that, um, that I read earlier, which says, verse 6, No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Verse 9, no one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. Okay, that's, that makes better sense to me now. Do you see what he's saying? He's not saying that individual Christians, if you're committing, individual, if you're committing a single act of sin, you are not his child. He's not saying that at all. That's impossible. And he would be counter-contradicting what he said earlier. What he is saying is that the, the life of a Christian will not be characterized by a practice of unrepentant sin over and over and over. That is what he is saying. So he's saying that true Christians do not live in sin. But he's also saying that true Christians cannot live in sin. It's not just that, that that's, that's just what we will be because, you know, God's changed us and now we have this power that we can just do things on our own and, and we're growing and growing. It's not, it's not in us to do that. It's really in God because he says in verse 9, No one born of God makes a practice of sinning for God's seed abides in him. That's the reason. That's the reason why it is impossible for a Christian, a born-again child of God, to live a life of a, a constant practice of sin, unrepentant sin, because God's seed abides in him and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. What is it God's seed? Well, I think this simply means the very nature of God resides in the Christian. This is basic knowledge that we all know. When we're saved, when we're placed in the body of Christ, the Holy Spirit sets up residence in us, right? He makes that uh, we become His temple. He's ruling and reigning in our heart, and, he's, and, he, and He doesn't just plop down and sit down and He's inactive. He sets up and He begins work on day one. 
He begins construction on day one, and he does not take a break. He does not take a day off. He is constantly working and and changing us. That's why uh, Paul can say, He who has begun a good work in you will complete it until the day of Christ Jesus. He began that work in you, and he's going to continue that work of making you into the image of Christ. That's what Romans 8, 28, and 30 talks about, that we are predestined to be conformed to the image of Christ. God has already determined before he ever created the, the worlds that those, those whom he, has, he will save, he will ultimately conform them in the image of Christ. That is our destiny. And so he has already begun that work. It's not just that it happens when we lay down and die or when Christ returns and we receive that glorified body. He begins that work the moment that you are re- regenerated, that you are changed forever. And he begins that progress, that progressive work, progressive sanctification of setting you apart day in and day out unto Christ because His seed abides in you. And then finally, John gets to the really crux of the matter. He just makes an appeal for righteousness and really right thinking. Verse 7 and 10. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. Let's just get down to the crux of the matter. What are you saying, John? Let's, let's get down to it. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous, as he is righteous. In verse 10, by this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. That's the question we all ask, right? We want to know. Who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil? How is it evident? How do we know How do we know who they are? John, using his familiar term of endearment, little children, says, Don't be deceived, little children. Christian, let no one deceive you. The Gnostics, whom we've talked about, who John is dealing with, the false teachers in his day, they were teaching a different gospel. The Gnostics, with their sharp minds and elegance, were capable of not only making their own sinful conduct seem right, but also confusing the Christians in regard to who was and who was not God's child. But John, not wanting anyone to be confused, lays out the issue in as black and white of terms as possible. He says in spiritual terms there are really only two groups of people. Now get this, this is important. There are only two groups of people on the earth. Those who are God's and those who are not. It's that it. It's that simple. There is no third group. He has made it painstakingly clear that it is only by regeneration or the new birth that one enters God's group or becomes his child or enters his kingdom. There is no progression from the kingdom of Satan to the kingdom of God. We don't progress into that. You cannot grow into it. You're regenerated and you're placed into it. By a sovereign act of God. And most importantly, and I think this is what John is trying to to combat here with the Gnostics and he's trying to teach us, is that you cannot go back and forth from one to the other. You cannot dwell in the kingdom of God and then go back into the kingdom of Satan. You may act like that, but that will not be the characteristic of your life or else you may not be a Christian. In other words, the way you act does not determine who you are. 
Rather, who you are determines the way you act. John wants his readers to fully understand that there must be evidence for whether or not a person belongs to his family, to God's family. It is not a matter of mere profession, for many will say that they are Christians when they're really not. This is my own testimony. I think I've shared it with some of you before. I made a profession of faith in a revival service when I was somewhere around 12 years old. I don't remember the exact age, but it was somewhere around that time. Came forward and said the sinner's prayer. Was baptized. and Was told that I was a Christian and I would be a Christian forever. I said, great. Good news. I checked that off because that's something my friends were doing. I felt... I'm getting around the age of 12. Of course, that's the age of accountability, right? So now I'm accountable to God. I need to take care of where I'm going. And so I did that. Continued through my school years. Okay. Get into high school. Things start to go a little not okay. Begin to dwell with things that I should not do. Join the Navy. Leave home for the first time. No authority over me whatsoever. Did I go off and serve Christ and His kingdom? Absolutely not. He was not even on my radar. In fact, I don't even think I had a conscious thought about God or Christ beyond any cursory level thinking of I might hear His name probably for the next 15 years. And so I have to ask myself, is that what it means to be a Christian. Was I a Christian at that point? And so, as I was reading through the Bible, like I said earlier, and I get to this verse in 1 John, and I get over my initial reaction, and I study it out, and I see exactly what it means that a true Christian is not somebody whose practice of life is unrepentant sin. Then, it began, then the light bulb goes off and says, Ah, you were not a Christian. You went through these outward things that Christians do, you, you profess faith in front of a church, you get baptized, you were, grown, you were brought up in a Christian family, and so all these things I did, but that, is not, that did not do anything for me. It did not change me. Why? Because I was a liar. I was not a Christian. And so on August 6, 1998, God sovereignly changed my heart at work. I was not in a church service. I had not been in church for many, many years. And God, using somebody He had just saved a year earlier, used that person to save me by getting the gospel to me. And so from that day forward... I can say there's been a noticeable difference. Has it, ha- has, has it been this way the whole time? No, absolutely not. It's kind of like Wall Street. If you pick two, two dates way apart, you will see progression. But if you narrow your parameters down to months and weeks, you start to see what? Ups and downs, ups and downs. That's been the pattern of my life, ups and downs. But... Over the, the grand scheme of it, there has been ups. And that is the testimony of what, a, what John is saying is what a Christian is. He's not saying that you will not commit 
individual sins. But he is saying that when you do commit them, you will hate them. And if the pattern of our life is that we sin and we do not hate it, something is wrong. There may not be life there after all. We will commit sins. Some of us will commit heinous sins. Christians can murder. Christians can commit adultery. Christians can do all kinds of heinous things. But when the Spirit of God begins to work in them, whose seed abides in us, what will you think about that sin? If you agree with God, you will hate it. And that is evidence of the new birth, new life. We will, as we grow in grace, begin to practice righteousness. The modern American church has fallen into serious deception on this crucial matter of sin. The popular view is that there are two options for the Christian life. Plan A is for the really committed, you know, the people that trust Jesus as Savior and Lord. That is, this is tough. You have to obey Jesus totally repenting of all your sins. It means giving up the right to spend your money as you choose because you yield it to Christ and manage it as His steward. It means following Jesus as His servant. He may call you to go to the mission field or He may even call you to die as a martyr. But you will have rewards in heaven. That's plan A. Okay? That's the people that are really committed to Christ. But if that's too difficult, according to the Amer- most American churches, you can always revert back to plan B. Plan B is you accept Jesus as Savior, but you don't need to follow Him as Lord. With this plan, you will go to heaven when you die, but you just don't get as many rewards. But you can enjoy the pleasures of sin now and at least get in the door of heaven later. But the truth of the Bible, the truth that John is emphasizing here is that there is no plan B. There is no plan B. Plan A is the only plan for eternal life. Christ calls you to follow Him as Savior and Lord. You cannot do this by your own strength or willpower, but only if He imparts new life to you, causing you to be born of God. If you have been born of God, it will be noticeable. The new life in you will produce a life of righteousness. And so John is here saying, little children, let no one deceive you. If you practice righteousness, you are righteous as He is righteous. Your individual acts of righteousness, as the Bible says, are what? Filthy rags. But... When you, are, when you are practicing righteousness because you are part of Him and He is righteous and thus you are righteous and His seed is abiding in you and, and growing you, then you don't have to be deceived. You can know that you are a Christian. So in the final, just a couple of minutes and I'll close, I just want to make a few observations from this text this morning. First, there are people who are deceived into believing that they are children of God and in reality they are children of the devil. I was one of those for many years. Jesus has some very sobering words for these people. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. 
On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. There it is. Many people are going through the motions of religious activity like these people here. But they are workers of iniquity. They are workers of lawlessness because they do not know Christ. And the pattern of their life will prove that. John, I mean, um, Paul in 2 Corinthians 13, 5 says, Examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves, or do you not realize this that you... That, uh, that deep, or do you not realize this about yourselves that Jesus Christ is in you? Unless indeed you fail to meet the test. It's the same test that John is talking about here, right? The test of righteousness, the test of obedience. What is the pattern of your life? And so there are many people who are deceived, there are many people who are on the broad road to destruction, but the beacon that, is, that they see on that road says what? This way to heaven. This way to heaven. Second, because there are many people who are deceived, who, do not, who believe that they are children of God, but do not live that way, this is why there must be an expectation that our churches that our church membership is, to the best of our abilities, made up of regenerated people. This is why we have a membership process. This is why we have a covenant. This is why we practice church discipline. Because we don't want people to be deceived. We don't want people to wake up after they die and hear those words from Christ. And so we must, bring, we must confront each other when we get into sin. We know that each one of us are capable of heinous acts of sin. But it is the greatest act of love for, for them or for me to confront me when I am in sin. Because the greatest thing for me if I am in sin is that I turn and be made right with Christ. That is the greatest thing for me. So if you love me, even though it might cost you your friendship with me, you should confront me. And that is what we are. We are a covenant family here. And we only want certain people to come be a part of this family. We don't want people of the world. We don't want children of Satan in here. They may, they may end up here. But if we have all of these things in place, then we have... We know what we can do with that. We, we can confront them with the gospel, the expectations of what it means to be a member of a church. It should mean more to be a member of Christ's church than it does to be a member of the Rotary Club. And I think, unfortunately, in many ways, it's about equal. There are no more expectations laid on them than it is to be a member of a civic organization. And that cannot be the case. We must take this seriously because we love Christ first and because we love people second. And then finally, this should be encouraging to those who are children of God. Remember John's, John's um, thesis statement for his whole book, chapter 5, 
Verse 13, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. This is an encouraging book for the Christian. That's what John wrote it to do. And so, as we hear these words, Christian, we understand that everyone who practices, makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. That may not be the pattern of our life, but we can still see sin in the same light. We can still see it as lawlessness against our Heavenly Father. And if we see it that way, we will hate it all the more. And we will turn from it quicker. We take comfort and encouragement to know that, uh, that Christ came to take away our sins. And he has, taken away our, the, he has taken away the penalty of our sins. Do you not know that? That Christian, when you are put into the body of Christ, when you have been regenerated, your sins were dealt with on the cross. Past, present, future. They have been taken care of. You no longer are guilty. You are justified in the sight of God. In Him there is no sin. No one who keeps on sin, no one who abides in Him keeps on sinning. That's hope for the future, Christian. If you know Christ, you are abiding in Him. This is not something that you do one day and you don't do the next. When you're abiding in Christ, you are a part of Him. And, he, and what John is saying is, is, those who abide in Him will not keep on sinning. That is great news for me. That the, that the progression of my life, the future days of my life, should not be characterized by sin because the power of God is there to change that. That is His number one goal for me, to make me into the image of Christ. We are righteous in His sight, but there again, because Christ's righteousness covers us. Christ has destroyed the works of the devil. He has no... Whenever you sin, do not say, the devil made me do it. Because He has no power over you anymore. He has no power to make you do anything. When you sin, you sin in full light. The devil has been... His... His bondage and His reign over you has been destroyed. He is an adversary, though. He does seek to destroy us. But we, He has no power over us. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in Him. Take great hope from that, Christian, that the Holy Spirit is residing in you today, no matter what you are going through no matter what sin struggle you are going through, no matter what pain you are suffering, God's seed is abiding in you. And His number one goal, His number one focus for you is that He not make your life comfortable. That's not it. His number one focus is to make you into the image of Christ so that He may be glorified. And so if you have that same goal for you, then you are working in harmony with the Spirit. And so no matter what comes across, no matter what circumstance comes your way, no matter what trial you enter, you can, as James said, have the joy. Because we are righteous in Him. And He is righteous. There's great hope there. Great encouragement. Let's pray. Father, I thank You for the richness of Your Word. I thank You, God, that You have not allowed us to be deceived, that You have given us clear 
unmistakable truth to guide us so that we may know that we truly are one of your children. And Father, once we know that, even though we may struggle in this life, and each of us have a testimony here today of days that we have struggled with assurance, with obedience, with faith, we know that, Lord, as we are faithless, you are faithful. We thank you for your spirit that resides in us who will change us more and more each day to be more like Christ. We take great hope in that. And we pray, Father, for those who are deceived. We pray, God, that that this would be the day that they would begin to ask the hard questions of their life and do an examination and see that Christ is in them. And if it is, we pray for those who are deceived that you would make that painstakingly clear to them so that they can turn and repent and know you as their Father. Bless our church, Father, to be pure, spotless bride of Christ. For your glory we ask in Christ's name. Amen.